Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. In this episode, Dr. Daniel Kraft, a physician scientist, inventor, entrepreneur, and innovator, explores the future of health and medicine with Tufts University's Katie McLeod Strollo. He discusses the reinvention of medical education, crowdsourcing medical data from around the world, revolutions in dentistry, must-have technologies for parents, and the apps and other forms of technology that could help change the lives of patients. Dr. Kraft brings to his current role as faculty chair for medicine at Singularity University more than 25 years of experience in clinical practice, biomedical research, and healthcare innovation. He is also the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine, a program that explores convergent, rapidly developing technologies and their potential in biomedicine and healthcare. Dr. Kraft came to Tufts to speak on the occasion of the 150th anniversary of the Tufts University School of Dental Medicine. Let's listen in. Welcome, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we would love to hear from you a little bit about what you do. How would you describe your work? Well, I trained as a traditional physician scientist, uh, internal medicine, pediatrics, hematology, oncology, and sort of while doing my traditional medical training, I always loved kind of crossing fields from space and aviation, since I'm a pilot, to medical devices, to digital health. And about 10 years ago, in 2008, I helped uh, be on the ground floor of a new institution called Singularity University, where we look at the advancement of technologies from AI, robotics, 3D printing, biology, et cetera, and how those are going to impact and how we can leverage exponential technologies to impact the future. So part of my academic hat is chairing medicine for Singularity University, which is based in the heart of of Silicon Valley, um, and also has built and spun off a program called Exponential Medicine, where we look at how do all these new tools and technologies, um, what's their implications for the future of health, from health and prevention to diagnostics to therapy to global health. So part of what I do is help people see the future early and catalyze new thinking and ideas to address uh, medical and health-related problems. We want to talk a lot with you about the future, but we would love to first start by taking a quick look back. As compared with, say, 10 years ago, what are some of the key advancements between then and now? Well, there's a lot that's happened in the last decade, particularly, you know, that we experience as consumers. We're only basically 10 years into the smartphone, into the app store. The fact that I'm wearing a new Apple Watch that can do an EKG, uh, that 5G is coming. The fact that we can stream a thousand movies. Lots have happened just in the last decade. We didn't even have, we barely had Twitter and Facebook 10, 11 years ago. So those are just small examples of advancements, let alone the quick advancing pace of things like self-driving cars or artificial intelligence being embedded in our environments or things like Amazon Alexa and our, our, our home voice assistants that are only been out for about three years. So a lot's happening quickly and things are accelerating. And it's kind of that lens I like to share with people when they think, what could the next 10 years look like in terms of health and medicine? How would you describe uh, things that are on your radar that may be coming out in, say, the next five years, 10 years? Is our future bright? Well, we need to sort of rethink and reimagine elements of health and medicine, particularly in the U.S. We're already, you know, 18% of our GDP. We're the highest spend per capita, but we have like 14th in terms of outcomes. So there's lots of room to improve. Um, and part of that is potentially reframing 
where we really practice and how we practice healthcare, which in reality is more sick care. It's sort of based on intermittent data, you know, the occasional blood pressure check, EKG, um, lab, uh, et cetera, that we get a fraction of the time we might be in a clinic. So that leads to a reactive sick care model. We wait for disease to happen, heart attacks, strokes, uh, a late stage cancer. And part of what I see is the advent of the new age of health and medicine is that we're gonna be more continuous with our wearable devices, our internet of things connected homes, our mattresses can track our physiology when we sleep, the, your microphone on your phone can pick up changes in even mental health or risk for other diseases. So we'll start to pick up these digital breadcrumbs as well as have you know low cost genomics, you know hundred dollar genome, our microbiome data, and use that to very much more smartly, personally, proactively pick up your risk for disease. And when you do have an issue, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, to manage in a much more precise, data driven and feedback looped manner. So part of the future is no one technology. It's more how we put these things together. How do we connect the dots? How do we empower each of us as consumers or patients to use our data, not just from our you know, Fitbit or wearable, but to connect that to our healthcare team, to crowdsource that so we can take that from big data to actual information, and then hopefully to align the incentives to use some of these new tools, data, and technologies to, to move the curve and, and not just be treating, you know, spending 80% of our healthcare dollar on the 20% of the population that already have advanced chronic disease. So what about in the world of dental? I think there's a lot of interesting potential in the dental world, everything from new ways to do smarter, easier prevention. There's obviously connected toothbrushes today and you can gamify it and get your kids or yourself to, to compete and, and stay on top of your brushing. I invented a little 3D printed uh, mouth washing machine. So maybe you could uh, brush your whole mouth and floss you know, with a little automated robot. <laughs> um, we can think about ways to look at the microbiome of the mouth and predict who is gonna end up with worse periodontal disease and maybe even replace the, the microbiome in the mouth and the gut. In terms of dental education and therapy, a lot of folks don't come to the dentist because they're afraid of the pain or, or the environment. We can use tools like virtual reality that are used for video gaming that you can now put your smartphone in a VR headset, maybe while you're in the dental chair, use that to relax as a patient or for a dental student or surgeon to train for a, a surgical procedure and practice it ahead of time. So instead of how most of us clinicians train, see one, do one, teach one, it's gonna be see one, sim one, sim one, sim one, sim one, until you get it right. Um, and then other realms of, of dentistry, you know, could cross over with the advancements in 3D printing. It's already changed the way we do orthodontics, uh, you know, scan your mouth and 3D print braces, all the way to um, 3D printing, you know, whole mouth replacements, or even using stem cell biology to regrow teeth. So. Lots of things I think can impact dentistry from the proactive preventative side to medical education, to engagement, um, all the way to regenerative medicine. With it being the 150th anniversary of Tufts University School of Dental Medicine, I'm curious, what do you think the future of dental medicine looks like 150 years from now? We're not going to have teeth anymore. We're just going to be uh, eating some uh, IV infusion of our personalized nutrients. So, yeah, um, bad joke. Um, 150 years is probably a hard window just because you know things are accelerating. The change we've seen in the last 20 years probably dwarfs the you know 100 years before that. Um, I hope we still don't have the model of you know calling up on the phone, waiting for your appointment, sitting in the waiting room, filling out the number two with the number two pencil, the clipboard with the same questions, using a fax machine to communicate. Um, I would hope you know the future of dentistry and, and medicine in general will be one where you know you start to do proactive practice habits, whether it's easier ways to brush or floss, but that your dentist, when they see you, they'll see you 
potentially much more virtually. Um, there are already obviously a, a slew of dental related apps, but ways that you could do teledentistry, virtual care. Um, maybe you even have a home medical kit, a home dental kit, which will enable you to take care of, of issues, whether it's a dental carry, all the way to um, form of something more significant. So I think we'll change the practice of our touch points. We'll change the way we use all the data. So it's blending artificial intelligence for just-in-time information and care. So I think there's a variety of ways we're going to blend into the future. None of them will happen just at once. And for those who are listening, you know, don't wait for the future. I think we can all go out there and create it. If you see a challenge area in your clinical practice or your own health issue, um, go out there and find some solutions that might exist already and help connect those to your primary care physician or your dentist to help solve them. So what would you say to people who might worry about becoming overwhelmed with so much access to information on the internet and within apps? What's your advice for consumers? Well, there is a challenge of being overwhelmed. We can wear all sorts of wearables and have dozens of apps. I think the future is going to be to sort of synthesize these. You know, the next generation of wearables have many more sensors and they don't just track steps in sleep. They can track my heart rate or if I have a heart arrhythmia. Um, they might give me insights into my sleep in interesting ways that might be indicative of sleep apnea or other problems. Um, and we don't want to be looking at our raw step in sleep data. We want to see a sort of a synthesized score. And Different people want to see that information in different ways. Some want to see the actual raw detail. They're a data geek. They're an engineer. Others just want uh, like a FICO score for your financial health, a FICO score for your overall health, and use that to guide prevention and therapy. And if you're communicating to a millennial versus a baby boomer, you need a different form factor, the user interfaces, how we design the clinical and preventative experience. So part of it is letting people meet their data and hopefully information in, in ways that match them and their personality and to use that smartly to incentivize good behaviors or to manage a disease um, and adherence to a therapy when we need to as well without in, in, in an engaging way. You know, the engaged empowered patient is a new drug without being overwhelming and uh, just full of, of, of data, not, not actual information. How about privacy concerns? Where do you see consumers in, you know, five, 10 years from now, um, thinking about their privacy as to where it is now? Well, social change, social norms change around privacy. You know, the younger kids today are very happy sharing almost everything on social media. Some have different privacy norms, but I think, you know, data and potentially shared data is really the oil of health and medicine and dental care as well. How do we crowdsource our genomic information to be doing a smarter job at picking up predictive elements or picking the right therapy for a cancer? How do we share our digital exhaust and understand what it means? But be able to opt in to share that data so that we're able to build, you know, a better map of healthcare. Just like with our driving today, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we still used paper maps. Remember paper maps? Now we all drive using Google Maps or Waze, which is this convergence of crowdsourced driving data. And that's your speed and location, which is pretty private information. If I think we had that same mindset that we could share data, but get something back to build our own healthcare journeys and healthcare maps and guide us around the traffic jam or around the drug that won't work for us or to a therapy or, or um, solution that matches our, our needs, I think that will empower people to share data. At the same time, there's always going to be dark sides. You can 3D print a tooth. You can 3D print maybe an organ. You can also 3D print a gun. Uh, data can be stolen or used in positive or negative ways. So I think... We need to look at other technologies like blockchain is being explored in many ways to uh, store and share medical data, enable clinical trials. Um, and those who are running healthcare institutions and record systems need to be on, on top of these technologies as well to prevent hacking your hospital or hacking your genome. Let's talk a little bit about healthcare apps. What has been developed in the last few years and what's still coming? 
Well, we're only in 2018, 10 years into the you know, app store and you know, billions of dollars of apps have been sold. And there's tens of thousands of actually quote unquote health and medical related apps. Some of them are actually becoming FDA approved. So you know, the idea of prescribing an app to help manage mental health, your phone can be a, a signal to, uh, if someone is bipolar, are they um, sitting on the couch and not moving or are they manic and texting and there's a voice change? That could be a, an important measure. There are some mental health related apps out there. Um, some of which are again, going through regulatory processes. Um, we're seeing apps that can combine with wearables and social networks that can be a game changer for, let's say, type 2 diabetes. We can identify individuals who are pre-diabetic and before and they're on the cusp of becoming diabetic, which adds expense and medical issues and morbidity, mortality, uh, and put them in a social network, give them a wearable, put them with a, a virtual coach, and they can dramatically turn folks around. That's an app platform from Omada Health, which is now also getting reimbursed. So there's lots of potential great digiceuticals, apps, devices, platforms, unless they get through the regulatory process and can get reimbursed, sometimes it's a bit of a so what. So in general, there's lots of small little apps. Some can be super simple and effective for like tracking your medications. Uh, that's such an issue because many folks don't take their meds. We can see apps that will connect caregivers. So we're doing more patient-centered, more collaborative care and unfragmented care. Uh, I think the future of the app in some cases, they may, in a sense, disappear. Voice is becoming common. You can talk to your Amazon Alexa or Google Home, and they're going to be guiding you through your health regimen or your therapy. Uh, hey, Daniel, uh, did you remember to do your physical therapy today? Or, hey, Alexa, help, I've fallen, I can't get up. So voice can be a sort of window for certain folks. Um, and I think what will hopefully happen is we'll have a bit of this convergence uh, kind of like the check engine light in your car that can guide you if you have a problem or can be a smart GPS to guide you to your destination. These apps will become integrated into our phones, our homes, our watches, our, and won't be a separate app you have to open for health. Um, and the design of those will match you and your personality and age and carrots and sticks. Given we're here at Tufts University, what about for students? What technology, apps, devices, just amazing for students? I think we're in a really golden age of reinventing education, not just in health and medical dental, but in all fields. And my favorite technology there is, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, and extended reality. So today you can start to buy off the shelf technologies like HoloLens, and that's being used in medical education to train uh, nursing, mental, dental students, to learn anatomy, for example, in a collaborative way, or to overlay clinical information when you're doing a, a procedure over on top of a patient to do a better, smarter element. So you can both learn anatomy through these types of platforms, put on a VR headset, even a cheap one that's made out of cardboard, which you slot your phone in, will let you go through the heart or go through the anatomy system in a virtual way or a collaborative way. So it's gonna really transform for some people who are very visual learners like I am uh, to, to, to see something in three dimensions, um, to, to go into a side of cell and, and rejigger DNA, all those ways you can potentially learn using VR and AR. And then potentially on the simulation side of the equation, you can potentially put teams together, practice a procedure, make mistakes, just like in the flying world, aviation, I'm a pilot, you know, flying safety has gotten dramatically better because we put every airline pilot and others through simulators. That can, it already is starting to change the way we train individual procedures and whole teams, how you respond to a code in an emergency room or how any, you know, even a whole medical practice can be simulated and optimized. In the fighter pilot world, which I come from as a flight surgeon, we would pre-brief a mission, then fly the mission, and then debrief and look at the tapes from the dogfights. Some of that can come to medical education as well and move from our era of see one, do one, teach one to see one, sim one, sim one, sim one until you kind of get it right before you actually practice on a patient. And what about parents? What is out there for parents that they just can't miss that could just help them better care for their children? 
well, there's lots of tools now and technologies to track your kids from the cameras that can watch them in their crib to even cameras that are being embedded with AI technology so the camera can actually look at the child sleeping and pick up their heart rate, their respiratory rate, interpret their cry, maybe even pick up developmental delay early. Uh, it can certainly be a virtual leash if your two-year-old likes to run off in the store, you can find them. Um, I've got a two and a four-year-old. You have to be careful with screen time, I think a little bit, but there's ways to get them doing some incredibly creative work and self-paced learning uh, using some smart, you know, apps in limited manners. I think, you know, for the parent, you can also get some virtual support <laughs> uh, and maybe learn some skills and, and telepresence in with your pediatrician. You don't always need to bring your child in for an exam of a rash. You can send them the, the photo uh, or there's virtual AI driven apps that can start to analyze a rash and tell you whether it's something concerning. So lots of tools for the busy, overwhelmed parent um, that can impact uh, the child's health from, from very early on. Everything from wearables for babies, too, to track their, their vital signs, their steps, how much milk they're drinking, uh, or to match a particular uh, medical or developmental issue. So let's talk about crowdsourcing. We have the ability to gather so much information and data from people around the world by way of the internet. So what are the possibilities with data as we look into the future? So data is a bit of the new oil for, for healthcare. And we have, you know, exponential exploding amounts of data, but they're still often quite siloed. You know, does Tufts talk to partners, talk to Stanford, talk to, you know, London, Royal London Hospital? I mean, some of this data, if we shared it in empowering ways and, and uh, aligned incentives could really help speed up discovery, how we manage patients, build those sort of, you know, Google Maps for, for health and biomedicine. Um, but I, so I think data is important. Um, sometimes it doesn't need to be perfect data. You know, does it need to be an FDA approved wearable and get your steps exactly right? If it's a glucometer and it's connected to your insulin pump, probably yes. Uh, and as we can get more data in the real world, as opposed to just folks who are in the hospital or the clinic, we'll learn how to better predict disease uh, based on maybe your, your mattress sensor picks up that your heart rate's gone from 55 to 75, and that might be indicative of a pulmonary issue. It might be um, that there's uh, people are self-reporting flu in your neighborhood, and your doctor knows that information and can prescribe you Tamiflu without bringing you into the office and affecting everybody else. And so it's how we connect the dots. It's how we take all this massive, overwhelming data, make it information, and integrate it into the workflow of, let's say, the overwhelmed clinician. Whether you're a dentist, a doc, a surgeon, a nurse, a parent, no one wants more apps and checkboxes and you know elements to do. We need to smartly think about the workflow elements so that the data becomes useful and not overwhelming. So let's talk a little bit about Boston. What's being developed here right now in Boston that's particularly intriguing or exciting? Well, Boston's such an amazing hotbed. I was lucky to do my medical training here in Boston for four years, and you've got the convergence of all these great educational centers from Tufts to Harvard to MIT, and you know, a rich environment of creativity. Um, so what I love about Boston is this overlap. And some of the things that are being developed here, certainly a lot on the genome side through, uh, through many institutions, learning to take our basic genetic information and start to stratify and risk for disease. So imagine when you go to your primary care doctor, they don't just know your family history, but they know your genetic history and can really start to guide your prevention and management. Not everyone needs to wait for age 50 for a colonoscopy. Maybe it's age 60. Not everyone need, woman needs a mammogram at age 40, so maybe earlier and later, just a small example, based on your risks. Um, how might we start to modify our microbiome? So that was pioneered in hospitals here, doing fecal transplants to treat patients who might have died in an intensive care unit from C. diff infections, a form of overgrowth of a bacteria in the gut. Um, there's a lot of interesting work at this sort of convergence point, some of it out of the 
uh, media lab uh, where you're blending robotics and human human interaction, uh, even wearable exoskeletons or uh, smart prosthetics to enable someone who might be missing a leg or two legs to run faster and have more capability than someone who's normally able. So I think Boston's such an amazing melting pot. Plus, you've got the big pharma here. You've got investment community. You've got the perfect catalytic environment to, to take something from the from the lab and the benchtop to the clinic uh, or to take a student in a dorm now to collaborate and 3D print a prototype and get it funded and, and into a medical device or into a hospital system like, like Tufts. Now, in all of your travels, where in the world is inspiring to you right now? Is there a country or region where technology is exploding that's simply extraordinary? Well, there's, you know, innovation. I, I live in Silicon Valley, you know, and people think, oh, that's the home of all innovation. Uh, I think we're democratizing innovation, invention. It's not all uh, coming out of California like, like or Boston. Um, I'll be in Israel later this month, and there's a lot happening in there. There's certainly a innovation nation. One of the powers of, of Israel is not just a great educational system, but they have a, in the health side, a sort of integrated data form, just like in the United Kingdom, NHS have, has a lot of their data under one system, so you can potentially do discovery and innovation faster. It's not a big market in Israel, but a lot of that's distributed to many places, from medical device to apps to, you know, a company there that can now take your voice from your smartphone and, and, and analyze your emotional states. Is one example. Another one of Israel is making a trainable called the Upright that you put on your back. It's like your digital mother tracks your posture and gives you feedback to improve your posture with just a week of wearing it. This was just a couple small examples. So that's one place, but. I would argue now with the power of the internet, with programs like Biodesign that I went through at Stanford, you can start to teach innovation. If you've got a pain point, if you have a pain point as a parent, as a pediatrician, as a dentist, as a patient, you go, how could I solve this differently with some of the technologies that are here today, whether it's a new app or some 3D printed solution or some convergence? It's a real new era where you don't need to be in a million dollar lab or a biotech company. You can start to innovate and collaborate and catalyze solutions anywhere. So we've talked about crowdsourcing and different regions of the world and apps. How connected can the world get? Could a healthcare patient, a consumer in one region of the world be able to tap into another area quickly, easily, accurately? Where are we going? Well, what we traditionally practice medicine. If I'm seeing you in the clinic and you have a certain problem and I'm not quite sure what to do, I would go to the literature and I look for a double-blind placebo-controlled trial of a patient hopefully somewhat like you. In reality, though, most drugs and solutions are sort of to the average, and very few patients are actually the average patient. Uh, part of the potential of connecting the dots around the world, you know, we have now, in the last decade, we've gone from about 20% to 90 plus percent electronic medical records, but a lot of those records are still kludgy, the user interfaces are terrible, doctors don't like them. But if we could start to learn to connect the dots between that data, someone who's taking care of someone in Mumbai in India could tap into the Tufts database because there's patients similar for some reason, genetically or otherwise, and that we can have that as real-time information. And using AI machine learning to start to sift through some of that really then give the clinician, let's say, don't tell them what to do, but here's a suggestion. Here's a, the basis of these studies and this crowdsourced information from multiple medical centers. This looks like to be the best route of care. So. And we can start to integrate these data pipes amongst, again, institutions, both hospitals, EMRs, pharma, uh, to whole, the whole world, we can build that sort of smart internet of healthcare things and healthcare data that could give us real-time intelligence and real-time proactive healthcare on a global level at lower cost with better outcomes. So bring it back to Boston here. Uh, you had a residency at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston Children's Hospital. So we're wondering, what's your favorite thing about Boston? 
I was supposed to say the Red Sox, right? Uh, but uh, one of my favorite things is I was really lucky to live right on Beacon Street and just the Boston Commons. And it's a commons, it's a true commons, the people who come through there from Bostonians to all around the world. And you've got the Charles River and the rich mix of people. I just love the sort of energy of Boston and the, and the diversity but also sort of the Boston feel and that you've got some great traditions and great institutions like Tufts and the fact that everyone kind of plays together well, but also mixes it up. And it's so much has come out of here from the revolution to uh, revolutions in health and medicine. Uh, and, uh, you know, here at Tufts Dental School on your 150th anniversary, you're in a great sweet spot of, you know, your own history, but also the milieu around you is going to help you create a lot of great things for the next 150 years. Thank you, Dr. Kraft. We greatly appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Be sure to subscribe to listen to more episodes, and please take a minute to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Katie McLeod Strollo, Stefan Hacker, and Dave Nusher. Anna Miller recorded Dr. Kraft's interview. Web production and editing support provided by Momo Shinzawa and Taylor McNeil. Production support provided by 5 to 9 Media. Special thanks to Tufts University School of Dental Medicine. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music. And my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well.